Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 329 is recorded live June 1st, 2017. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm great. Sore and tired, but great. And we also have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Hey, Darren. I'm doing excellent. Uh, thanks for having me on. And how are, you, how are you and Jim doing this evening? Well, I'm doing great. Jim there? I thought we oh, yes, I'm here. Okay. How's Jim doing tonight? Jim's sore and tired. I know right where you're at, buddy. <laughs> All that is. Well, tonight we're going to record just a little bit different than normal talk shoe. We're going to blame it on talk shoe, but it's probably my internet connection that's doing it. So this will be one where we don't have a chat room. We'll try and work out the details so that we have one going on next week. Uh, but as we are getting that time of the year where the weather is is getting to be awesome, this is this is what you live in Michigan for, is this early June weather you know, between the storms and the wind and everything else, it's just been some beautiful days. I understand that both of you have been out on the water. How's the uh, the weather in the lake been? Well, I was out last night operating as committee boat for the St. Joe Yacht Club race, and it was just a beautiful night on the right lake. Nice light breeze, flat sea, just a great day. And then Kevin and I went out with Bob today, and it was another beautiful day. Six, maybe a foot of light roller, hardly any wind at all, beautiful bright sunshine, 55-degree water temperature. It was great. Yeah, today was a nice day for diving. Uh, you know, it was warm-up wetsuiting, um, you know, lots of ambient light down there, you know, the, the visibility was not the best, so if we hadn't had the sun directly overhead, I'm sure it would have been pretty dark down there. But as it was, we get ambient light, and, um, you know, it was, you know, this was mediocre, but hey, that's kind of the Havana. Don't look at the dive. It's more about the wreck. It's about the people and the event. And, uh, yeah, today was a great dive. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the news. We'll start off with, um, we, we had one article, which we're not going to read through here. But we'll put it into the show notes so people can can read it because I thought it was actually a fairly well written story on the Griffin, uh, and it it kind of encapsulated all the articles we've done up in the last year and a half all to one place. But we've covered that so many times, and the title of the story says it all: the White Whale of the Great Lake Shipwreck Hunters, and the Griffin certainly has been the White Whale. The white whale that seems to get found about every 10 years. Yes. It's it's uh, almost like Loch Ness. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's cool, though, because even though without fail up to this point, every time the white the uh, griffin's been found, it's always debunked and shown to be something else. It still does generate an awful lot of media buzz for scuba diving. I'm sure if someone tracked it, you definitely see an uptick 
in the number of uh, people signing up for scuba diving courses every time the, the uh, story comes around. So, hey, let's keep on feeding it. Bring it on. Yeah, that would that'd be an interesting study to see if that actually panned out. Uh, but it, I, I agree with you. It does tend to get covered more than many other stories. Yeah, well, you know, we all kind of chuckle at it because, you know, we've seen the story of the Griffin come and go so many times over the years. You know, if, if you research, you know, uh, LaSalle's Griffin found, you know, you'll come up with, you know, dozens of articles over the last 150 years that, oh, yeah, it's been found, and there are there are a number of candidates out there for what it might actually be. But, you know, every single time it ends up being disproven, debunked, and found not to be the Griffin, per se. But, hey, it still generates an awful lot of media buzz. Um, you know, I'm sure every diver out there has been asked by the, the non-divers, um, hey, where's the Griffin? Have you dove the Griffin? You're going to find the Griffin, you know? It gets some attention for us. It's our little, it's our little PR ship there, you know? So Yeah. yeah and, you know, that maybe that needs to be our new T-shirt line. You know, I, I dove the Griffin. <laughs> mm. All we, right. We, we could sell little tiny Griffins and place them on each wreck. So everybody could have dove the Griffin. Well, you know, there's a there is a Griffin of the Straits. So <laughs> I think I have seen a photo of that particular Griffin. Mm-hmm. with Jim and Bob last summer, um, actually on the uh, St. Peter. I, I chose a wreck we don't die on, so we get a little, little, bit, little bit of comedy about it. But you know, if you dive the Griffin, I see the Griffin. <laughs> Dive the St. Peter at the Straits. Uh, you can do a for those qualified. You can do a very minor hull penetration coming in from the starboard bow, and just as you're sticking your head in there, look down and you see like a little I don't know cubby area in, in, in between the inner and outer hull. And uh, there's a little pla- there's a little plastic Griffin sitting in there. Bought them on Amazon for about I don't know twelve bucks. So. He's now on the St. Peter out there. Well, this next article we have is EU auditors are denouncing the lack of action to curb overfishing. A European court of auditors has published a damning report on fishery compliance by the member states of the European Union. The auditors visited Spain, France, Italy, and the U.K., specifically Scotland, which represents nearly half of the Union's total fish catches, revealing a serious lack of control in the Mediterranean Sea. According to the report, virtually no effort is made to ensure compliance with fishing rules. About 96% of the region's fish stocks are overexploited. The report cites a number of deficiencies. First member states exempt vessels between 40 to 50 feet in length from the satellite monitoring if they are fishing in national waters and stay at sea less than 24 hours, resulting in 79% of these vessels operating without being monitored. Second, the report found that member states do not perform the mandatory engine power checks, a major problem since more engine power equates to bigger catches and deeper depths. Third, there are found to be huge deficiencies between catches recorded by the member states and the data available from the European Commission, the difference being sometimes 72% in Italy, for example. Commenting on the report, uh, Executive Director of Oceans in Europe said the European Court of Auditors report confirms that we've been saying for years control efforts need to be stepped up in order for efficiently implementing the common fishery policy and stop overfishing. Without real and efficient control and enforcement, our fisheries will be nothing more than a pile of bureaucratic papers for fishless seas. 
and this in general is just my bitch with many regulations, is we certainly love to create the illusion we've done something by passing a rule, and then we don't enforce it, or we selectively enforce it, so you've got this noose that's hanging over everybody's head, and it only gets applied to somebody who's who's not connected. Well, yeah, but the article's been talking about how a, a lot of folks are falling through the loophole because the vessels aren't over, out over 24 hours. They meet the criteria not to be satellite monitored. Right. But, I, I mean, I don't know how our, our DNR operates here, our Department of Natural Resources, which is still fishing game in some areas. They, you know, they don't satellite monitor the people fishing out here, but, but they do spot checks. And yeah. the spot, the, the penalties for the spot checks are so high that people don't want to, don't want to be a violator as, uh, you know, all the, all the times you got away with it are made up for, you know, the one time in 50 you get caught. Yeah. So. Well, a, a lot of what I've seen of it has been just from watching reality TV, specifically the deadliest catch. And it appears that what they do is they set fishery counts. So it doesn't matter if, I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter if you're fishing illegally, but they're going to catch it based on the total amount that everybody can bring in. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of uh, uh, catching at that point. Uh, where Yeah, like with deadliest catch, the, with deadliest catch, it can only get in so many pounds of, of crab for that particular right. species and that particular outing there. Yeah. And so when you when they bring it into the cannery, then the cannery, you know, they're going to tell you what they have, and so they're basically going to be caught based upon what the cannery has to say. Uh, is there any reason? I, I mean, we don't know the, the specifics of this case, but that may be going on here as well. I think the primary gripe in this article is just that the, uh, the large percentage of them are falling through the satellite monitoring, which I don't know if the satellite monitoring is going to really tell you exactly how many fish you got in the boat. You know, It no. might tell you where, where you've been and um, you know, how long you're in a spot, but well, and that's my question: is if you had something satellite monitored, are they what? What are they gaining other than maybe they're able to keep them out of protected areas? Because that that is one thing that I've I've noticed watching the uh, again deadliest catch is that there are certain areas they're not allowed to be in. And there was a couple episodes where somebody ventured into it. You know, they they misread their numbers and then realized they set pots on the uh, wrong side of the line. Oh, those guys know where they are. <laughs> they know right where they are. Yeah. <laughs> well, this one guy, they they he, they self turn they turned themselves in, and uh, I, if I remember correctly, they just had to uh, uh, dump anything that they had caught in the in that location. Or when because what they did is they placed the pots, and then when he went to pick them up, he realized he had he had them in the wrong spot, so they just uh, what they call them rail dumping. Where they dump it in, but that—that's the question here. Is with the, with the satellite, what's that going to tell other than the location of where you're at? Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe it's for this enfor- enforcement to make sure you're not out. Well, they, they say they can be out more than 24 hours. They just have to be monitoring. Uh, now, now, Jim, I think you probably deal with fishermen more than any of us do when it comes to. I, I know you do a lot of talks at the uh, local steeler chapters and things. What What are your thoughts on this? Mm. I'm going to withhold my comments tonight. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Play the political uh, game. All right. Uh, Sounds like someone's not real impressed with Trump tonight. So. <laughs> well, this ne- next one we have is video shows lionfish eating a new species of Caribbean fish. 
uh, lionfish, which, as we all know, is the uh, venomous predator with spines that's an invasive species now in the Caribbean. Uh, they said that these the lionfish are now moving into a new area, what they're calling the twilight zone area, the ocean that lies below traditional scuba diving depths. Uh, and since it's that deep, there's little known about the reefs and the species that inhabit the, those areas. Researchers from the University of Washington and the Smithsonian Institute reported they first observed uh, lionfish preying upon a fish species that had not yet been named. Their results published in May 25th, uh, PLOS-1, may indicate an uncertain future for other fish found in largely unexplored ocean uh, coral reefs. Lionfish aren't going anywhere, and we are forced to the fact that they are a permanent resident of the Caribbean Reef, said lead author Luke Tornabin, curator of fisheries at, at the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle and assistant professor of UW School of Aquatic and Fishery Science. The hope is that the learning curve is quick and that other fish realize lionfish are predators. Right now, studies have shown some prey species to be pretty naive. Scientists discovered the new fish, which they named something in Latin, which is the, is the ember goby, which just based on the goby name doesn't sound too promising to me. Well, on several submarine dives off the coast of Curaco and Dominica, the species described in the paper as a bright orange stripe down its spine and schools together in masses of about 100 fish. Strikingly different behavior from most gobies that hide as individuals in holes or cracks in the reef, making a new species an easy target for lionfish attacks. From a submarine, they recorded footage of the lionfish cornering, attacking, and eating this new species. Lionfish employ hunting tactics that are unfamiliar in native reefs dwelling fish, such as using long fins to slowly stalk and prey into the corners. They also shoot jets of water out their mouths to disorient their prey, and scientists have even recorded lionfish making a roaring sound to communicate potentially ward off would-be predators. I, I think somebody took a little artistic license in saying roaring sound. Uh, scientists are concerned yeah. that, that lionfish are now swimming into deeper reefs down to nearly 250 meters, which is about 800 feet below the surface of Curaco, and likely eating fish that live in those largely unexplored parts of the ocean. Once we discover invasive lionfish, sometimes in huge numbers, inhabiting barely explored deep reefs, our concern was that those vicarious predators might gobble up biodiversity before scientists even know it exists. The study suggests that they are doing just that, as uh, co-author uh, Carol Baldwin, curator of fisheries at National Marium, uh, Museum of National History. Good news is the goby species have been eating by the lionfish appears to be abundant throughout the Caribbean. Researchers have observed in large numbers on many submarine trips in the region. Almost a third of the fish species along the deep reefs haven't been named. They also be at risk of lionfish continue to raid the area. And they go on. Uh, mm-hmm. mm, so, let me get this right. Lionfish eat gobies. you know where I'm going with this? You're looking for freshwater lionfish? <laughs> Yeah, but looking at the the picture of the goby, this goby here has nothing to, in common with the the little pesky things we find all over the wrecks out there. So, yeah, yeah, this one's kind of cute. Uh, I mean, they're they're talking about salt water, but uh, this looks a little bit like uh, neons or uh, more of a, not a goby guppies. When I raised guppies, yeah. you could have some of these. So, well. the, the- the body structure, the color, this thing, I mean, maybe there's some similar species to the gobies we were aware of, but uh, these look nothing at all like the gobies we find in the freshwater here. 
So. And then a faceless fish that has been missing since 1873 has been found in deep waters off Australia. And I'm assuming it's not this, the same fish. A weird-looking fish which appears to have no face, has not been seen for over a century, has been found by scientists exploring the deep waters off Australia's east coast. Tim O'Hara, Senior Curator of Marine Invertebrates at Museum Victoria and colleagues from the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, or CSIRO of Australia, rediscovered the faceless deep-sea fish measuring 47 center, excuse me, 40 centimeters, or about 16 inches, last weekend. O'Hare and his colleagues on board RV investigated a month-long journey off Australia's east seaboard to survey marine life and thrived in a deep and dark cold abyss, uh, about 13,000 feet below the surface using sonar and deep-sea cameras as well as nets. O'Hare described the area as the most unexplored environment on Earth. The abyss is the largest habitat in the planet covering half the world's oceans, one-third of Australia's maritime territory, but we know very little about it. Abyssal animals have been around for at least 40 million years, but until recently only at a handful of samples have been collected from Australia's abyss. The abyss depths of 4,000 meters to 6,000 meters, which is 100 times deeper than the deepest scuba dive. Depth is also 20 times deeper than what a World War II submarines were able to descend and eight times deeper than we withstood by American nuclear submarine. The fish was found at a depth of 4,000 meters. At this depth, many animals do not have eyes or they produce their own light through bioluminescence. Scientists said that the creature does not seem to have any eyes and has an interestingly odd appearance. This little fish looks amazing because the mouth is actually situated at the bottom of the animal, so when you look at it side on, you can't see any eyes, you can't see any nose or gills or mouth. It looks like two rear ends in a fish, really. <laughs> well, it's kind of a nasty-looking thing. There's a picture here of it there, and it's kind of hard to make out yeah, which which end is up on this one here. Yeah, it looks like uh, something from a sci-fi movie, you know, like the spawn of Alien. Mm-hmm. I'll give you that, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like got a minus a tentacle. It's kind of a squid-like body shape here, or octopus body shape anyway. But, yeah. yeah I, and it's, I it's kind of a... a a terrible picture, but in a way it almost looks like a stage of, uh, oh, uh, like tag tadpoles. Could be, could be. Yeah. I'm, I'm having a hard time getting the whole, meet this article. There's, I'll tell our listeners that there's a <clears throat> fair amount of clickbait on this thing here. You open it up and you've got videos all over the place that want to load and load, which you, you, you can pause them, but you can't get rid of them. And I think their idea is they, they make them annoying enough. You'll just get, watch them through because they're basically plugging me totally up here. So, how about yeah. you guys? Are you guys getting this junk too popping I, up on I, here? I think my connection's so slow that they can't even actually play. But yeah, I, I see what you're talking All right. about. Um, so yeah, it, it's an interesting article in itself. But be prepared for some junk to try to jump all over your system when you're watching this article. So this is from the uh, Tech Times um, article. So many numbers and faceless fish. Yeah, it's a cool article. Just just watch out for the junk and jump on you when you're here. And then here's something that uh, scuba divers may like, a precision underwater laser scanner for divers. An Aberdeenshire-based Savant Subsea Lasers has miniaturized its dynamic laser scanning technology in an integrated diver-operated 3D laser measurement solution. The CTS 3D underwater laser beam, a handheld operated tool, integrates 3D laser scanning technology into a compact, lightweight unit. It quickly creates an accurate digital virtual rep- representation of a 
submerged structures using a cloud of precisely determined 3D points uh, accompanied with photometric measurement, the intensity of the optical energy at each measured point. These digital points cloud models are photorealistic quality, offering full color immense resolution essential for monitoring structural issues such as progressive degradation, uh, developing repair solutions for damaged infrastructure. You know, and the reason why they're, they're pitching it for that uh, is because that's where the money is. But I'm looking at this thing. Wouldn't that be cool for measuring a wreck? Yeah, I wonder how, how much is dependent upon visibility, though. Um, <clears throat> no, I don't know. Uh, if uh, it would work, that's a great, be a great little tool. But yeah. well, It's going to be uh, dependent on it uh, to a certain amount. Uh, the laser is going to have to penetrate and... Uh, you can already do this even without a laser. You can do this just with a camera. If you get enough uh, photos of an object, so say there's like an anchor on the bottom, and you take 20 or 30 photos of good quality around that, you can run that through software, and it'll make a, a 3D, three-dimensional image of that. Uh, oh, the down, the yeah. downside is, as you're referring to with with poor visibility, is, you, is uh, that particulate can confuse it to uh so it, it may draw things that aren't there i played with this uh years ago on some i actually what i did is i took it off a video where you've got to you know take a video camera go around an object and then create screen captures of that object and then run it through the software autodesk had one i think it was called uh one two three three d they've they've since renamed it put it someplace else and there's also some open source projects a uh, whole field of study on this 3D mapping from cameras, uh, but the but the laser, uh, there must be something specific that they're they're gaining with that. And I, I've 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 seen it before. I don't know exactly specifically how it all works. Well, I'm just thinking that with this though, it's got to have some kind of a target to measure against, and you know, I'm guessing it might be somewhat optically limited because you have to be able to see where to aim it. And it's a great idea for our freshwater wrecks, <clears throat> but keep in mind that you know visibility is seldom better than 50 feet out here. Um, you know, well, actually, this time of year you might find a better visibility than that, but uh, it's not reliably you know going to be better than 20 feet. Uh, so it's going to be hard to say you know if this is going to be a, a realistic tool because you're going to have a hard time knowing where to aim it exactly what I'm, what I'm getting at. So. Uh, Got, it's got potential, um, but yeah. might be a real challenge. Yeah. I, I wonder if you could use some kind of measuring with sonar equipment, though. I know that uh, I've seen some scans taken with uh, sonar, which were detailed enough. You could actually take measurements from the scans, uh, and that's not, of course, not going to rely upon you know actually being able to see the item. So, I'm, I'm going to guess that uh, you know sonar would work. Uh, the market that they're selling this to is going to be if you've got a vessel and there's some sort of damage and then you want to map that damage or if you've got a pipeline or or, or some other object to dam, for, for example, and you want to get some quick measurements without having a diver go down 20 times and uh, have to do some things, uh, that's probably their market. But I, I just instantly, when I saw this article, was thinking this would be pretty darn cool for, uh, you know, mapping with good visibility of shipwreck. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's got great potential with, with good visibility. I just think that the visibility here is going to be a limiting factor. Is, uh, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we see an awful lot of cool stuff in our 20-foot visibility. Heck, we saw a lot of cool stuff in 10-foot visibility today. But, you know, in order to, you know, make this worthwhile use, you're going to be looking at something, you know, measuring, you know, a lot bigger than 10 feet. And, you know, our visibility here is just not reliable enough. Yeah, you, know, you come down here early season, uh, you know, we're talking about going out to the uh, iron sides next week possibly. And we may have 100 foot visibility on the iron sides out there next week. Um, you know, I was on, you know, we went out to the, the Ann Arbor, which we'll talk about later on. And, uh, you know, with poor light, we had 40 foot vis. With great light, we had 80 foot vis. So good visibility is, is, is definitely a possibility out here. But, you know, to measure a large wreck with this might be a bit of a challenge because you're just not going to know exactly where to aim it. You probably need some kind of a reflector target to bounce it back at itself, and setting it up might be a bit of, you know, might be challenging in our visibility. So, Well, that does it for scuba in the news. So let's get back to talking about some actual scuba diving. Uh, so you, you talked a little bit earlier about, uh, was it the Havana you guys dove earlier today? Yeah, Jim, Bob, and I went out there this morning. We decided to make an early dive of it to, you know, get ahead of the wind. It looked like on the wind forecast it was a pickup in the evening. Although based upon the photos that I've seen on Facebook, uh, it did not. It was a real nice day all all the way around. Yeah, but we headed out, out of St. Joe about nine o'clock this morning, and you know, really couldn't ask for a better dive. What do you think, Jim? No, it's a great. Great day. A little better visibility would have been nice, but other than that, it was just a fantastic day. Well, you know, Havana's one which is just not really known for having that great of viz, you know, and the fact that we had 8 to 10, well, well, about 8-foot visibility out there. I think that's pretty typical for that rack. You know, uh, I'm sure you dove it too with a whole lot worse. You know, uh, I've been out there when it's been a braille dive, and, you know, it was kind of decent. I was going through my photos took you guys down there and you can make the stuff out it's not going to be on the cover anywhere but uh you know they're presentable photos i'll, I'll put them up on the club site here tonight yet so now, there have been days we've had 20 feet out there it's they're not the most common days but we've had some really good days out there i think a lot of it is because you know well you, you and i have seen it from side scanning out there that you get just inland of the havana and there are a lot of clay mounds over there. And, you know, our wind being predominantly out of the west, you know, of course, blows the surface water towards towards the shore. But then you know, that water has to return via the bottom. And when that water is returning along the bottom, then it always gets that convection current that just pulls all that clay dust off of those, uh, off those clay cliffs up there. Yeah. Maybe the thing to do would be to, uh, you know, plan a dive out there. Like if we see a flat day, with wind out of the east, that might be the way to do it then. Probably have some good viz on, on that day. Yeah, it's an interesting point. We'll have to start tracking it and see you know, what wind direction does with giving us better visibility on that particular wreck. Well, I know like when you and I were out there looking for other other pieces that day, you know, we were marking an awful lot of bumps on the bottom, which looked to be clay, clay mounds, would have been just to the uh, southeast of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, well, with our wind being, you know, prim- you know I'm thinking a northwest wind is going to pull all that. Well, actually, uh, a northeast wind is going to probably end up pulling a lot of that out of there. So, which is, you know, we, we get an awful lot of wind out of the west. 
Night. I know the quest went. Yeah, we'll pull that out. Yeah. 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 So let me get my bearings right. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if, if we see a good day when the wind is, you know, out of the east, maybe we ought to try that. Yeah. Good idea. Because the, the Havana, it's cool that there's so much down there. Uh, you know, it was a 138-foot shipwreck. Uh, went down in the storm, 1887. Um, couple of couple of guys did die on that wreck. Uh, the fuse that survived ended up climbing up in the rigging, and were plucked out the next day. When the boat went down, it was a big enough ship that the mast stuck out of the water. So, you know, you no, know, I've never seen any masts on that down there, Jim. Have you ever seen any masts on the wreck? No. No. Okay. Wonder perhaps they might have been salvaged. You know, with the mast taking out of the wreck, that's one of the things which does have significant value. So. They may have pulled, plucked those out when it was uh, sitting down there. 1887, that, you know, six miles north of St. Joe, they certainly would have had the technology to, you know, yank the, mass, the masts out of there. But it's, uh, you know, it's a tremendous amount of sea down there. You know, uh, Jim's dove this wreck probably more than anybody. And, you know, he's shown me pictures of, of dead eyes and all kinds of, you know, there, there's, there's rigging. It was a, a wire rigged ship, and there is wire rigging down there. There's chains. There's, uh, you know, it's really broken up, you know, because we're only talking about 55 feet of water, so it does get a significant storm surge. But I know, Darren, you've been on it, too. I mean, what's what's most impressed you on the wreck down there? On which one? The uh, Havana. I know, I know you've dove it. What do you, what do you like down there? Uh, you know, I like looking underneath the decks. Uh, you know, anything that doesn't have muscles on it is interesting to see. Uh, it's spread out, so you, you can get to, to see things that you wouldn't normally be able to see. Um, and it's interesting on that wreck, depending on where you anchor, it sometimes will take you a little bit to realize where you are on it, especially because it's, it's frequently, it's rare for me to have seen more than 20 feet fizz. Uh, maybe only a couple of times I can, I can think of it being better than 20 feet. Uh, and it's not uncommon. I've had a lot where it's been seven to 10. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's a wreck that, uh, when anchoring out there, you want to be a little bit cautious with your placement. Um, I was really trying not to put my anchor in the wreck today. Um, that's, that's a good idea wherever you go, but you know we know as divers that that doesn't always work that way. But uh, we ended up you know missing the wreck by about 50 feet, but we knew which which direction the, the, the it was, so we you know we knew drop the anchor. The wreck's just to the south of there, so sure enough, drop you know swam to the south and ran right into it. But uh, I know. Several people who uh, lost anchors in that wreck. Uh, in fact, it's not uncommon when we go out there to find an anchor in the spring because the fishermen know about it out there too. So, um, you know, there have been several anchor recoveries made out of that wreck. So, uh, if you do go out there, I believe there's a mooring out there now, though. So, uh, shouldn't be too much of an issue. I'm not sure. I don't know if I'd put a 30 footer on that mooring, but, you know, uh, you know, I think it's three eighths inch rope on that, so it should handle you know a good sized craft. More at your own discretion, of course. So, well, cool. But yeah, lot to see down there. It's got a huge keel, 138 foot long keel. Um, your previous article talking about the underwater measuring tool—that's kind of came to, to my mind. Is I know that uh, you know Jim, oh, Dan, and I had uh, measured that keel at different times. And come up with different measurements, and it's a with the visibility down there. It was kind of hard to you know, figure exactly where we were starting at. And um, interesting place to dive, but 
you did end up coming up with like 138 foot long on the keel with a 136 foot long boat with taking for the an account for the keel how it initially curves and then it lays flat over time uh you know definitely you know a lot to see down there um you know it's nice that it's laid open and that you can really get a good idea of ship construction on this you've got some you do have knees that are sitting upright you've got uh, you can definitely see the chine spit up from the keel. The boat's kind of in two sections down there. So uh, if you look at it on the side scan, you'll see it kind of looks like a, you know, a V opened up, I believe, to the south, as I recall. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very entertaining dive. It's, it's a nice beginner-level dive because you, it's all within open water depth, less than 60 feet. Uh, so just be careful about where, where you put your anchor. If you can, you know, and this goes for any wreck, really. If you can, avoid putting your anchor in the wreck because over time these anchors do do a significant amount of damage to the wrecks. Um, you know, anchor at your discretion out there. So, as one of our members found out last week. <laughs> but so uh, that was our Havana dive. Excellent. Uh, any other wrecks people been getting out into Lake Michigan the last week? Well, we hit the Ann Arbor 5 last week also. How'd that go? Yeah, we took uh, two, took two boats out there, and it was an awesome dive. Oh, that was an excellent dive. Again, nice warm, you know, for this time of year, warm water temps. Um, visibility, uh, I, got, I shot a little bit of video from alongside the wreck and was amazed at, when I started looking at it how much was visible in video, so I think I underestimated the, the visibility when we were on the scene. But, yeah, there was probably a good 60 feet, because you could see from the transom, uh, well, not well, not the transom, but, yeah, the, all the way down the stern to the sand. Yeah, you could. So, you know, and that's, well, and that's probably about 60 feet, 60, 65 well, feet off the sand there, so. Well, I've I've been told that the measurement of the boat from the high point down to the sand uh, going into the debris field is it's about a hundred foot of deck is is there. So if you can see all the deck, then you look you're talking about a hundred foot visibility. Uh, I know Rob and I did a second bounce after you guys left, and the sun had come out because when we were when we did our first dives on it was still overcast with the sun out. You know we had eighty foot viz out there. It was Great, great dive out there. Uh, I'm curious if anyone else dives that wreck. Did, I don't know if you know this or two, Jim, it might have just been an optical illusion or not, but uh, kind of like your, your take on it because you're out there as much as anyone. It kind of looked as though the deck is starting to buckle on that. I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to say, you know, with visibility and, you know, and, and how your, the, your lenses and your math tend to kind of give you tunnel vision and things. But... Uh, it almost looked to me as though the deck is buckling on that a little bit. You know, um, I was starting never, to settle. I've never noticed it. So I think one of the interesting things to do would be to get some good measurements uh, from, I'm going to say, the the very stern. You know, pick a part on the stern and then drop a line straight down to the sand. Of course, the sand could move. And then the other pieces, you know, if we could get an inclometer on there, um, 
get some angle on that just to document it. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I think from some of our side scans, um, we could about get, a, get an angle on it there because there was a day you and I were out there and it was just a total glassy flat day last year and we ran the uh, side scan over it mm-hmm. and we had scans that you could see the trucks on the deck. They were, yeah. they were so detailed. Yeah, um, we've had some good days out there. I'm sure I've got those archived. You know, I, we could pull those up and get, a, get, get an idea of you know, what, you know, what the angle on that baby is. Um, as far as the depth, I think I have, at least on, on, on my gauge, the, uh, the propeller, the center line of the uh, propeller is like 125 feet. So you can get the props at this sort up. So you know, the, the axle the props are about 125 feet. So beyond that, I couldn't tell you exactly. <laughs> Probably the high point in the wreck is, what do you think, about 100 feet? Maybe, maybe 95 feet, the high point? Mm, yeah, about 95 feet. So it, it is one of the deeper wrecks in this area, you know, uh, something which get you. It's definitely a, an advanced level uh, recreational dive because uh, it's you have to have good buoyancy control there. You know, the bottom is 160 feet. You know, there's quite a bit of wreck you can see within sport depth. And even though you can't go there, you can still see a lot of stuff that's going much, much deeper. But you really need to watch it. Because, you know, you can be swimming along the wreck and just go, go along the rail and find yourself significantly deeper than sport depth. And when you go deeper than sport depth, of course, your you know, decompression adds up on you much, much quicker. Your likely to connection to narcosis much, much more thoroughly. You know, thoroughly. So, you know, there are certainly are cautions to be taken at this wreck. It can be one which is pretty challenging to hook. I know on our previous wreck, I'm talking about not hooking it. Um, this one also has a mooring on it at this time, although it's mooring on it, who knows when, you know, it may or may not be there when you get there, as we've seen in the past. So, uh, if the wind is out of the south, this is one which is really, really tough to hook. If the wind's out of the directly out of the north, it can be a little bit challenging, but it's a little bit better than it's out of the south. You know, we were fortunate we had wind out of the, out of the west, and we were able to hook pretty easily the other day. So... You know, if the wind's out of the west or even out of the east, it's it's a pretty easy hook. Well, it's it's, it's a manageable hook, but you know, south or north or south, it can be a real bear to hook. So. Is there a buoy on that this year? Yeah, there's there a buoy on that this year. Yep. Okay, but it's it's not always out there. So uh, you know, if you're going out to that one, I would recommend be be prepared to hook. Yeah. So, but the bottom actually. You know, uh, is a it's it's a clay that's not hard enough to repel an anchor, but it's 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 you can actually get a pretty good hook in the bottom out there too. You might get a better hook than you want to really out there, as I've heard from some people. So, yeah, that would that's a bad wreck that, to get to get caught in because you could end up leaving the anchor. Yeah, or dive down well, and hook it. And there, there's stuff down there which uh, can hold an anchor pretty thoroughly. You know, it was kind of intriguing. Rob and I were diving down there. Uh, Rob Lusinski is a good dive buddy of mine. I was buddying with here and there. And um, he, There's a chain down there runs perpendicular to the wreck just to the south of it in the debris field. And great big heavy-duty links of chain. And I'm not recommending anyone, anyone go down there because, you know, then that's well out of, well out of there. 
but that is uh, just to the south of the wreck, perpendicular to the wreck. And we know the wreck was being towed when they lost it, and generally when they tow something, they tow it with cable, not with chain these days. It was being towed, was it 1969 when they, when they, when they got lost? Um, it's possible it's chained from the thing being towed, but I don't know. I would think they'd be using cable and probably tow, probably would be pulling it from the stern because this is one which they had, you know, welded up shut to, um, there was only, it's, it's actually only half a boat there. Um, you go to Michigan Shipwreckers Association website and pull it up. They have some really cool, uh, drawings of the boat showing it sticking in the ground. And no, the rest of the boat's not sticking in the mud. It is only half a boat, but it's a real cool half. So, yeah. You know, well, you know, Darren, what, what, what was your impression the first time you saw it? You saw it? Oh, it was, I, my, my first dive on it. God, that was, that was, uh, probably a dive I maybe I shouldn't have done. Uh, I had an air leak. You know, everybody was starting to go down. There was about five or six of us, uh, gonna, gonna dive on the wreck. And, uh, I got in the water and, uh, I had, and I think it was an, it was either inflator or a, uh, uh, actually, it wasn't the inflator. It was the O-ring in my uh, backup Octo uh, leaked. Uh, so I, you know, boarded the dive at that point and then went and uh, had a new O-ring put in it. I stayed in the water. Somebody else did it on the boat. Uh, they dropped the tank back onto me, and then I went down. And uh, and at that point, I was determined all I want all I wanted to do was touch the deck. Uh, so I, I went down the line, and it's like nothing anybody's described uh it just you know, being at that angle it's it's not what i thought it would be uh visibility was pretty poor i think it was maybe only 15 feet that day which is pretty bad for that wreck and when i came down i couldn't yeah. see anybody uh in fact the visibility the where it was moored the uh from the mooring you couldn't see the it was like right down the middle of the wreck so you couldn't see either rail from the center so while I was down there, I kind of went over just to kind of see what the deck was. Uh, and, you know, at that point, that's probably, it was like 119, 120. Uh, and I wasn't planning on being that long, so I just went right back up. So I didn't, it was almost like a solo dive because everybody else had gone down before me. And uh, I stayed down a little bit and came right back up. But that was my first dive. Uh, I've probably had about five dives on it. Uh, and all of them have probably had better viz than that first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said you only had about 15-foot visibility. I I think the worst I've seen when Jim and I dove with last fall, and we had, you know, about 40-foot visibility that day, which is the worst, the worst I've ever seen in the wreck. I mean, it's yeah. not uncommon to have 80-foot vis down there. Yeah. Well, I've had it where you can come down, and before I even got to the wreck, you could see the bottom. So it was just like a, coming down on a model of a ship. And it and it just slowly starts to come into scale, mm-hmm. so it's 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 a fun wreck. It's it's one of on the short list. If you're in, a, you start if you do deeper dives and you want to see a nice shipwreck, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is there is easily identifiable. I mean, you you and you you know you're looking at a rudder, you're looking at props. You know, this one is not at all broken up. You know, this is a an iron hulled ship. <clears throat> May be there for a while. I do want to uh, again caution our listeners. That uh, there has been some very limited penetration done on this boat. It's highly 
not recommended to do it. Um, the only person I know who's gone inside it was uh, Jeff Boss, and he's told me the story about it, and uh, he's not going back in there. Um, you know, he went inside it, and uh, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you how he got inside. I don't want to encourage anybody, but he got inside it and couldn't get back out of it and had to uh, work his way up to a high point, and you'll see not nearly at the highest point, but near the top, if you're on, on the deck, there are you know some access ports there, which are too small for a diver with tanks. And he's kind of a wiry guy. He was able to actually take off his rebreather, pass it out to the port, climb, climb out the port, and put his rebreather back on. And from what I understand, he had so much decompression obligation at that point, he would have been in serious trouble had he not been on a rebreather. But he was able you know, managed to get through it, and he's not going back in that wreck. If he's not going back in that wreck, I'm, I'm never going inside that wreck. So, you, you know, if you're out there and you, and you know where to look, there's a way to get inside this thing. But uh, keep in mind, if you go inside this thing, no one's coming to, no one's coming to claim you. Okay? No. It's not gonna. So. You're, you're, you're sleeping with the fishes. Yep. And it's pretty cold down there. So, this is not one that warms up. You know, we. You, know, you, you go down there in the, in the summertime, and it's still going to be in the 40s. That's why you have the good visibility out there. So, so what's on the list for upcoming dives? Um, I'm talking about going back out there again. Um, I, I had a few more good dives. did a dive with uh, a couple of buddies of mine, uh, Jason Blair, Kevin Ben Ripper out of Holland. We dove the clay banks, and uh, was it um, Crane and Barge out of Holland? Cool dives, you know, not an awful lot down there, but uh, Crane and Bard is very much intact. It's just not an awful large object to see down there. I tried diving it, you know, a couple of years ago and I missed it, but Jason had good numbers on dropped us right on it there. It was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Built a clay bank under there. It's pretty cool. Lots to see down there. I don't know, Jim Bobbin are talking about doing. Um, well, we're talking about doing the iron sides next weekend or something, Jim? Yeah, that was one of our comments was, you know, get up to the iron sides next weekend. Um, I'm always game to get back to the Havana because there's so much to see there. I'd like to do some more exploring of it and try to get some some good days where we could get some more video documentation of it. We've done some, but we'd like to get a lot more done. And uh, we haven't been out the Max Rec in a couple of years. Need to get out there just to... See what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know if it's uh, completely exposed or buried to the top. Yeah, it's been a, a little while. I think the last ones out there were uh, Jim, uh, Jim and Dan about two years ago went out there. And I had plans to go out there last year, but the weather didn't cooperate. I never get back on the schedule. So, you know, yeah. Um, Rob, Rob and I are planning on going out to uh, Baltimore tomorrow. And going to go investi- investigate some mystery numbers I have. Um, that that's all about. You know, uh, diving's very weather dependent, so you know it's just kind of a thing where hey, it's, it's looking good tomorrow. Let's go. So, well, very cool. Well, I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air one more season. If you like hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors, you like WRVO Radio. You want to get a link to see how you can listen. Go to www.scubaobsessed.com. Go down in the footer, and you can see a link to WRVO Radio. Uh, also, if you like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed, where 
uh, I don't do a lot of promoting on likes, but we are just a few likes away from having 500 on the page. So, uh, and I've been a cheapskate. I don't, I don't buy likes. You see a lot of pages out there that have thousands and many times that's how they do it is they're buying them. But, uh, just, just interesting. We don't do a lot on the, on the Facebook page. We post, uh, uh, some links to show notes and, and that sort of things. Uh, uh, Facebook kind of drains on me. I, 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 I can only get on there. Uh, you know, I just check on to see who got married, uh, unfortunately who died. And then, uh, you know, just some, you know, comments that way. But other than that, there's not a lot I, I like to do on Facebook. Hey, I'm curious, uh, Jim, do you have, have a dive hack for us tonight? No, don't really have anything prepared for tonight. Okay. Uh, if we got time, I could do a uh, shipwreck of the week. Yeah, why don't you go ahead? Okay. All right. I'm going to pick a pretty convenient one here. Uh, this one that is a little deep. Lots to see down there. And surprisingly underpromoted. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to promote Baltimore's bars tonight. Um, so I, I know that both you and Jim have been on before. Yep. Um, you know, when you hear the word barge, doesn't really usually bring up a very promising image of a dive there. This is kind of the exception to that, though. You know, this is a, a really cool dive. Uh, it's not a very large barge. Uh, I don't know, 50 feet. It's a story on it was when they were building Palisades. Had a number, had quite a bit of uh, machinery on the shore, and this one, uh, along with a 20-foot boat, some teenagers were playing around the shoreline and just got cut loose on the shore. Uh, wind and, cor- and currents took it offshore, and, uh, there, and, and, and there the barge sank. Um, this is one which MSRA came across when they were uh, out there running the towfish, looking for 2501. May have been been built before, may have not. That's you know speculation there. But uh, I'm going to read to you off of MSRA's website. Uh, Ralph Wilbanks and his search team from Cloud Colors National Underwater and Marine Agency discovered a 40 foot 40 foot barge while searching for remains of Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 in 2009. Found 125 feet of water. Presence of machinery on board hinted that this was not an intentional scuttle, but rather a barge sank accidentally. MSRA's subsequent research revealed the following story from the Benton Harbor News Palladium, Wednesday, August 21st, 1968. The header was Teens Fine for Covert Vandalism. Covert to Ark Park, Illinois' use were arraigned yesterday before the Covert Towns of Justice. Frank Consolino on charges of malicious destruction of property. Troopers said Charles G. Mathis, 15, and Thomas J. Dillon, 19, pleaded guilty to the charge and were ordered to pay fines and cost totaling 59.50 each. That's a bargain. Even 1969 pay prices there. Police said the arrests were made Tuesday after Stanley Andre, superintendent of the Consumers Power Plant construction site, apprehended the youth following an investigation of two boats set adrift. Police said a 40-foot barge containing about $1,800 worth of equipment and a 20-foot boat, both owned by Boltzmann Dock and Dredge Company, Muskegon, were set adrift on in Lake Michigan. Now, this is one which the numbers on MSRA site are very accurate. Usually they are, but these are, I've verified, been out there, done that. The barge sits almost almost upside down. Uh, it's actually 
resting on there's a oh a, a structure on I guess what would be the the bow of the boat. Um, barges are pushed from one end, and there's not really a propulsion, so you can't really say the which is the bow and the stern. But the uh, I guess the crane on this is considered the stern of the boat, and you can actually, if you qualify, can do a uh, a full wreck penetration on this boat. Uh, this is the one thing that I like about this ship is that you know we do have a wreck within sport depth, which you can do a, a full penetration on, and it's rather wide and open in there. I mean, you could just about put a Prius through it. Um, lots to be seen on there. The inside has all the machinery uh, to, to operate the uh, crane and Derek set up there. There, uh, you know, has diesel engines inside. As the site, as the article mentions, you know this one it was not stripped of machinery like it would have been scuttled, or if it had been found, you know, a long time ago. Uh, if it had been found, you know, pre 1988 with the uh, Great Lakes Shipper Protection Act, it probably would have had all the stuff stripped off it just for scrap value. But this one's best I can tell. There's nothing missing off of this boat. Uh, it's everything's there, you know, right right down to the cable and everything from you know off off the derrick. It's uh, you know. Usually a fair amount of fish. There's a number of burbot that hang around on the thing, usually on, on the high points of the wreck. There's, uh, you know, visibility tends to run about 40 feet there. It's not as good here as the Ann Arbor. It makes a pretty nice double dip, actually. Go out and do the Ann Arbor and then hit both of the barge on the way back in. Yeah. Curiously enough, go ahead. I was going to say that's that's very true. That's something that we frequently uh, have done. You, know, you, hit, you hit the deeper wreck, which is the... Uh, Ann Arbor 5, and then come on and do your shallow wreck. At, uh, what depth do you have on, according to your numbers? Uh, 125 feet on, on Boltimus. Yeah. You know, it's, it's curious, though, because Boltimus is on a direct line from the South Haven Pierhead to the Ann Arbor. So makes you wonder if there's a bit more of a story to this there. Because when, when, when it's buoyed, which sometimes it is, this is one which is no guarantee being buoyed either. None of them are really a guarantee of being buoyed. Uh, when you're going out to Ann Arbor, if this one's buoyed, you will go within, if you're running a good line, 150 feet of going right over Boltimus. I mean, you'll see the buoy, you go right by it there. And considering that it's, you know, it's six miles out, out, of, the, out of port, when you went to the, to the Ann Arbor, is nine miles from the pierhead, Boltimus is six miles from the pierhead. And, you know, it's right in direct line of the uh, of Ann Arbor. And the Ann Arbor number five was being scrapped by Boltimus Salvage Company, arguable, not Salvage Company, but yeah, by Boltimus Company, uh, a year later. So, I don't know, it makes you wonder if there's more of a story to this. You know, it really makes you wonder. Kind of curious. Mm. But yeah, very. It, it's a cool dive. And, you know, it's a, it's a wreck penetration. If you're qualified, you can do within sport depth right there. And, you know, decent biz. You know, it's not the you know the biz on the Ann Arbor, but you know, I've never had worse than thirty foot biz on it, and I have had seventy five foot biz on it. So definitely a cool dive. That's my feature of the week. Multiple Bart. Well, yeah, thank you. You all. Well, we'd like to thank our Dive Nitrox supporters. We'd like to thank all our Patreon supporters. Actually, if you've donated or if you think this show's any good, at least worth a dollar. Why not donate to our Patreon account? Follow the links on scubaobsessed.com and it will take you there. $3 or more gets you access to the show notes early, except for this week. Again, I didn't do it because we didn't even get TalkShoe running. So I'll probably post them 
anyway, just so people have have them before we get them up on the website. Uh, again, we want to thank our, our Dive Nitrox supporters, Scott Hulbert and Vanessa Holmyak. Um, let's see. You guys have anything you want to plug? No, nothing for me. Just if you're not diving, get out there. Unless you're in the southern hemisphere, this is the time to be getting wet. I'm with Jim on that. Yeah. I'm going to do my usual plugs of, uh, you know, support your local dive shops. I always like to have that bargain online, but that bargain online is not going to fill your scuba tanks. Also, uh, support your local libraries. You know, there's a lot of the wealth information there. No, you cannot find everything you need on, on the Internet. Uh, and it's a lot more entertaining the library, too. So check it out. Okay, you guys ready for that time of the show? I guess so. Yeah, bring it on, Darren. Let's do it. Okay. A penguin walks into a bar and asks the barkeep, do you have any squid? The barkeep says no, and the penguin walks out. The next day, the penguin walks in again and says, do you have any squid? The barkeep, a little annoyed, replies again, no. The following day, the Penguin walks in and repeats his question. The barkeep loses it and yells, Damn it, we don't have any squid. If you ask me that again, I'm going to nail your ass to the wall, so help me God. The penguin leaves without a word and isn't seen for a few days. The next time the penguin walks in, he and the barkeep exchange a long stare before the penguin finally breaks the silence. Do you have a hammer? No. How about nails? You got any? No. So do you have any squid? <laughs> right. All right. All right. Okay. We don't, we only said they were bad. Well, you know, the, your last few have not been. You, 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 I'm not saying you're breaking the mold, but uh, you, you, you're finding a, a, a lesser level of bad. A, a you're lesser building level. an expectation that's going to be tough to fill when we go back to bad scuba jokes. Yeah. Well, the, the the bar is not very high on that one. <laughs> yeah. It's just, just going to get everybody kind of off balance. So until next time, go out there and get wet. Have a good time doing it. For Mac, stay safe. And for the rest of us, I don't know, have fun. Works for me. Here we go. So turn that.